Wild Common Podcast. This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our products should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Well, Nick, welcome to the show. Appreciate it, Andy. Good to uh, good to join you. We've, we've officially got the Tequila Wanderer, the online persona himself, um, on the show. And and so Nick is an expert in the tequila space and does reviews. Has created this amazing online community um, where people all over the world connect around agave spirits. Um, let's just start off with with that. I mean, who is the Tequila Wanderer? This this character and this persona you've created um online and and what was the motivation behind starting this this online community that has now exploded um okay well where do we start so at the page i started on instagram roughly four and a half years ago um and the uh i mean going back then right there really wasn't a ton of tequila or agave presence on the platform and uh, it was really just something I'd been passionate about for, you know, twice as long as that. Maybe seven or eight years ago, I really started getting into tequila specifically, um, learning more about the culture around this production and, um, you know, the, the region that it's made in, in, in Mexico and, you know, Jalisco and all that type of thing. So I was traveling around the country pretty regularly for my, uh, for my day job, and I would always seek out really cool Mexican restaurants with tequila bars in every city I went to. It was always kind of a hobby of mine, you know, find cool new places and, and try their tequilas and, and see what they had to offer. And um, I was sitting on a flight one day without Wi-Fi. And I know that's kind of more rare these days than it was almost five years ago. But the uh, I was tearing photos of my iPhone. And you're a photographer. I'm sure you've dealt with this where you can't get anything done and you can't take any more photos because it was full and um i uh i was like man i got a lot of photos of tequila or tequila cocktails and mexican bars and restaurants around the country and i'm going to start an instagram page so that's how it was born um on a flight from los angeles to dallas and um you know long story short the page just kind of took off i think there was a void in that space at the time and um you know before i knew it i had random brands reaching out to me going, Hey, we'd love to be on your page. You know, have you tried our tequila? Um, so that was pretty cool. And, um, you know, that is, that is kind of what it is. And it started off being a bit more of a focus around tequila spirits, uh, you know, tequila cocktails and tequila, different types of tequila. Um, and like you mentioned, right, the page has grown to what I like to think of as a community. And it's really cool to see, just how many people from different walks of life and different corners of the globe have kind of been brought together and that I consider pretty good friends. And, you know, you yourself would be a perfect example of that. Um, just through this page and through a mutual interest or love of agave spirits. So, you know, that's pretty much the page. And um, that is the online persona, the tequila wanderer. 
um, you know, I get friends that introduce me to other people for the first time and they introduce me as, Oh, this is the tequila wanderer, which I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but, um, you know, it is what it is. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. You've got your, your Clark Kent and your Superman persona, <laughs> your day job, <laughs> and then your, your night and your weekend job. But it's, I mean, it's grown into over 25,000 people interacting. And, um, I've heard stories of, uh, you know, famous distillers, one, one gentleman in particular, uh, Salvador Rosales Trejo named Chava, um, who've recognized you at bars and events and said, you know, Hey, I want to go meet, uh, the tequila wanderer. And, and so you, you have made a name for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about, um, sort of being welcomed in by some of the legends in the industry, like Carlos Camarena, Jesse and Tomas Estes, Chava? You know, it's uh, that, that particular story was was one of my favorites, right? It was really, really cool. And um, I've had, you know, I've had some some pretty cool people, maybe not in the tequila space, but follow the page and whether they be professional athletes or, or you know, reality TV stars or whatever it might be. Um, pretty cool that I've connected with people that are, you know, innovators or leaders in their space, if you want to call it that. Um owner of NASCAR teams and, and, and different things like that. It's just, you know, I've met these people and interacted with them about tequila before I even knew what they did. Um, but the story about Chava was pretty cool because I had, uh, I had just been, I ran down the street to one of my favorite spots here in Dallas, Jose on Lovers, and uh, hadn't seen a good buddy for a while and caught up for a drink. And I'd literally been out for 10 or 15 minutes and the bartender, I can't remember what I was drinking, but the bartender asked me, you know, do you like Cascoine? And I went, yeah, absolutely. I was just drinking it at home before I came here. And he said, well, the owner of the brand is sitting on the other side of the bar and he wants to say hi and have a drink with you. And that was just a really cool moment, right? That someone who I'd never actually met or really hadn't even conversated with on the platform or through the Instagram page recognized me in a random bar in Dallas. And, um, you know, Along with him, like you mentioned, right? Some of the some of the biggest names in the tequila space, um, absolute legends, and everyone is unique in their own right. Um, the fact that I'm able to, you know, shoot some of those people a text message, or um, the fact that they would share insight into something that's up and coming projects that they have, or or plans that they have for their, you know, for their fifth generation um, tequila production, um, is pretty cool. So. It's uh, it's pretty fun, and it's very, very strange to hear or to, to be a South African-Australian living in Texas um, and to be mentioned in conversations with people like that, right, who are fourth or third generation um, tequila distillers from some of the best distilleries in the world. And I, I mean, I think from the outside, looking in, at least from my perspective, before we were... Um, introduced i mean you 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 come at it without an agenda um and that's refreshing because i feel like certain reviewers uh you know before they open something you already kind of know their position on it or they've already made up their mind based on what they've heard or how they feel about uh corporations versus the small guys and one thing i like about your page in particular is you recognize that there are uh, there's no wrong way really to um, get together with friends and 
to find an entry point into the category? Yeah, you know, that's something I, I, I kind of landed upon, a philosophy or a, a, if you want to call it a, a motto that I landed upon pretty early in the tequila page. I uh, Before I was ever connected with the, with the masters that we mentioned earlier on, um, I was confronted, if you want to use a nice word, by the aficionados who um, could not have anything less, um, you know, any more uh, offensive to say about certain brands owned by, you know, I don't know, George Clooney or or, or another celebrity. Um, and I found it very interesting early on that I was, you know, that, that, that just posting a picture with a certain tequila invoked such a negative response from certain individuals. Um, so I decided early on in the process that I was never going to be um, I was never going to be kind of a, a, a page for hire where I would blast and promote just anything and everything. And, you know, if someone's willing to pay me, I would, would sing the praises for, for their window cleaner. Um, but at the same time, I just decided that, you know, there's enough negative stuff on social media wherever you look. Um, so I came up with the philosophy. If I don't have something nice to say about something, then I just don't talk about it. Um, and I get criticized for that, right? People call you a hypocrite. And I say, look, there's plenty of places you can go find negative reviews all over the, over, all over the place. I'm like, if it's on my page, um, I stand by it at, to some degree. Um, and ultimately, everyone's different, right? So if you've watched enough of my live tastings or guest tastings, I, I use the cheesy phrase, you know, the, the best tequila there is is the one you enjoy drinking the most. Um, I like to educate. I want more and more people to know how tequila is made and how some of these great brands and the history behind them and how they're produced and the really authentic traditional methods that produce those tequilas. Um, I like to highlight where maybe some very popular brands aren't produced in the same way. But ultimately, if you still like drinking said celebrity brand that's produced with a diffuser and uses added coloring and flavoring, you know, who am I to tell you you're wrong and it's not good? Um, if you enjoy it, you enjoy it, right? I think uh, most of the time, people are actually open and more willing to try some of the more traditional, smaller family-owned brands when they're not confronted with, you know, immediate disregard for what they enjoy and what they think is nice. Uh, yeah, and I think um, that, I mean, that's what, what I've, really noticed about um, sort of your community versus a couple other groups that I'm a part of on Facebook and elsewhere where, um, you know, if a, a new individual comes into a group and they're seeking education and they're curious and they <laughs> like what they've tasted, uh, they just get destroyed. And that really closes the door for them to, to find the more traditional products and to learn about cultural heritage and to learn about sustainability and the carrying capacity of the environment um, as well as the economy down in Jalisco, Mexico. And so uh, I appreciate that you, you know, recognize intelligently that uh, point A will get them to point B and eventually they'll be uh, on their path to learning and trying new things. So it, it's refreshing. Hey, that's I, for sure. uh, I'm, a, I'm a part of some of those, those same Facebook groups that I know you're talking about. Oh, yeah, about. yeah, yeah. When I, when I see someone new hop on there and they go, you know, 
XYZ celebrity brand and hey, I'm you know new to tequila and I just got this one and it's delicious. I just kind of go, oh shit, here we go. Yeah. Get your popcorn out because it's just a matter of time before the person gets absolutely destroyed. And, uh, you know, like you said, right, how that person's first kind of uh, interaction with the tequila community is, is, is a negative one. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those people just don't even conversate anymore, right? Um, and definitely not trying to go that direction with this conversation, but it's kind of the same argument in politics today, right? It's when, when people completely dismiss someone else's opinion because it's not the same as theirs, they don't convince that person to now think the right way or the way they think. They just make that person kind of close up shop and stop listening to anything you have to say. Um, so, you know, with the tequila, I, I find I get, I get some slack for making a fun review of a certain celebrity brand that launched a couple months ago. And um, I took some screenshots of the direct messages and I sent it to a few of the people that were being critical. And I showed how I got interactions from people brand new to the page, followed the page because of that review told me how much they loved it. And then my response was, well, if you like that, you should try El Tesoro Blanco, right? Or G4 Blanco or Tequila Ocho. I mentioned three or four others. And I had about three or four people message me back within a week saying, hey, just went and bought that tequila that you recommended. Oh my gosh, like I absolutely love it. Like this is my new favorite. You think any of those people would have gone and tried those tequilas if I just bashed them and told them that their choice or because their favorite wrestler now brought out a tequila, you know, they're in the wrong and they should never buy it again? Yeah, Probably I mean, not. It's a, right? it's an intelligent sort of social uh, or, or a social intelligence rather to, to recognize, you know, if you're trying to get from point A to point B, um, confrontation isn't the way to do it. You know, when, when in the history of uh, escalated emotions has telling someone, Hey, you need to calm down. When has that actually ever made somebody calm down? <laughs> Never. Uh, right? Yet we all, uh, yet we all try it at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, some of these, uh, the social intelligence and some of this life experience to me, it seems like it stems back from, uh, growing up in South Africa. Can you speak a little bit about that and what it was like growing up during apartheid? So, you know, I never, I never really thought about it that way. Um, and to be honest, right, so apartheid ended before I really grew up. Um, and there was some stuff that was going on while I grew up in South Africa. Um, but, you know, I'm not even ashamed to say it. I'm, I was relatively shielded from it, right? So I've seen some documentaries of things that were going on in my own country. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is insane. You know, this must have been like in the, in the sixties or something like that. And then I'm watching this documentary. It's like 1985. I'm like, well, I was alive at that point. Um, and I'm giving away my age over here, but it's, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a, you know, in, in an environment in South Africa where I, I never really saw a lot of the stuff that, you know, most Americans or foreigners kind of, you know, make South Africa famous for, um, but at the same time, I was I was kind of brought up in the South African way is really just just no bullshit, right? It's just a, a pretty straightforward thinking. Um, there's right and there's wrong, and you know, I guess when you grow up in a developing country where people have real issues, I mean serious, serious issues, right? I can't feed myself. I don't have running water. I don't have 
electricity, um, some of the less irrelevant things, well, some of the less important things just are literally irrelevant, right? Maybe some issues, and I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying any issues that people are standing up for in the United States currently, but, you know, some things are just, in South Africa, people would laugh their ass over if they knew there were people that had a whole movement and a charity to, to counteract a word or something like that, right? You know, when people don't have water or electricity, they don't give a shit what word you're using if you're not using the correct phrase to refer to their, you know, to them or their whatever it is. It's the least of their worries. Now, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but I think um, it, it creates a level-headedness, right, where it takes a lot to really get me upset, um, I, I guess I grew up in a way where there's so much, for lack of uh, excuse my French, there's so much shit going on around you that you learn to just kind of shrug it off and keep keep moving along. Um, and which is even more reason why I would never feel the need to go out of my way and get into a heated argument over an agave spirit because someone liked something I didn't. Right? It's It's very irrelevant in the greatest scheme of things to me. And so did you grow up spending a lot of time sort of out in the country, out in the bush as a kid? Yeah, so I did, right? And I, I grew up in, I guess, in the suburbs, um, near the capital, in the capital Pretoria, but not in the, the city, so to, you know, so to speak. Um, but it's really funny, right? So I went to a school um, called Pretoria Boys High School. And uh, shout out to, to Boys High. Um you know, now um, the school's over 100 years old, and it was a, uh, a kind of a British-style high school where 30% of the kids were boarders from all around the country, so they stayed on campus. Um, and because I lived in the neighborhood, I was a day student. Um, but I always joke with friends, right? And I said, well, they basically just were, like, pumping out five or four or 500, like, James Bonds every year. All boys, private high school. Um, but we really had to do everything. There was no, I feel like in American high schools, at least my experience is that people find out really early what their passion or their goal is. And they kind of really get focused and dive into it, whether it be a sport or a, or a musical instrument or a, you know, everyone's in a, almost in a fast track to success in the U S people are in high school and they're already taking some college classes and, you know, they're in college and they're already doing an internship for the company. They want to, go work at. And in South Africa, they, you know, especially my high school, they, they raised us to be um, very well-rounded. So you did everything, right? I sucked at music. I have a terrible singing voice. I could not play a musical instrument. I still had to be in a choir. Um, the guys that were phenomenal musicians that could play nine instruments and that were, you know, destined to be in the symphony, um, they still had to run cross country with the athletes. Um, everyone had to take a minimum of two languages. Um, you know, you had to take an extramural event. You had to play a winter sport and a summer sport, no exceptions. And that's everyone. Um, and just probably people that would be critical of that, that kind of schooling, right? But I loved it and I would, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat because, um, you know, it gives you a little bit of everything. And part of our schooling was we would spend time camping, right? Every year, two or three times a year. Um, we would spend time camping. And then myself, personally, uh, my family would spend a lot of time in the Kruger National Park, which is the the largest national park 
um, in the world. And it's, uh, you know, the, the comparison is always the actual space is it's, uh, it's bigger than the country of Wales. And it's a fenced off national park that, that ho- you know, houses or is home to pretty much all the species of, of Southern African uh, mammals, all the big five, all the ones that, you know, people see on TV. Um, and it was pretty damn cool. So at school, they would teach us how to tie a bow tie and wear a suit and polish your shoes so you could see your face in it. But they also ta- taught you how to make a fire with sticks and, you know, what berries you could eat and which ones you couldn't and what to do if you ever got bitten by a certain snake and, you know, what to do if you ever came hiking around a corner and you were confronted with a, with a lion. So definitely unique and probably very unique to, uh, to South Africa and, and a few schools in South Africa, but it's, uh, it's probably an education that not many of my American friends got in Dallas. That's for sure. And it sounds like there was sort of a, a community vibe at the school where, um, you know, it benefited you as an individual to, to work not just for yourself, like in many American schools where the emphasis is on your grades, but um, it sounds like because there was a boarding school and, and there were both people from around the country and, and day, day sort of students like yourself, that it benefited you to work for the group as a whole and to work collectively um, and to have some social awareness about you know, what your role was in the group. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that to an extent for sure. You know, uh, I know some of our punishments in that were, you know, we'd be punished as a group for the actions of one or two many times. Um, and you, you kind of held yourself accountable and you held your peers accountable in the same way. Um, but even if there were disagreements within your, your school and your group of friends, if it came to, you know, one of our rival schools, um, you know, trying to look for trouble on a, on a Saturday night out or something like that, even if you didn't know who the person was and you knew he was, he was a boy's high boy, you know, you had each other's back. It was a, you know, it was a tight, tight community. And I think, you know, we mentioned earlier on, like some of the social issues that, that South Africa saw through a certain period of time. Um, I think part of the reason I was so sheltered to it is that, you know, those issues were, were very or much less relevant in my school where I, where I brought up, right. It was, it was kind of our school versus our other, our rival school. And it really didn't matter where you came from or what your background was or what your home language was or what the color of your skin was. Um, you know, when we played team sports together, you, you know, you'd die for those guys um, on the rugby field or, or wherever it might be in the pool on the water polo match. Um, it didn't really matter. All the other stuff was kind of irrelevant, right? You're, you're a high school kid and you weren't concerned with what was going on outside of that. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was definitely a special community that, uh, I'm really glad I was a part of. It also sounds like, you know, your family made a point of connecting you to the natural world. Um, you've talked a little bit in the past about knowing how to survive a lion attack. Do you want to, do you want (laughs) to clue us in? Well, I wouldn't know about, you know, myself, any personal experiences about a lion attack, but, you know, you learn pretty early when you're, when you're out in the bush that the worst thing you can do when coming across a lion randomly is turn around and run away. Um, their natural instinct is to, uh, you basically look like food when you run because that's what their food does. So um, as tough as it might be, and in fact, it probably isn't very tough because most people will just shit themselves and freeze dead still anyway. They can't move taking a corner and getting confronted by a 500 pound lion. But 
um, the, the thing you have to do is kind of stand your ground and, and stare it in the eye and, um, and, and just don't, don't blink, don't, don't, don't move and don't stand down. And it's something that most of its prey never does. Um, and it's the most kind of successful way to navigate around a, uh, a lion encounter when you're in the bush. Now, the surviving a lion attack thing comes from, you know, hearing some of the legendary stories growing up of, you know, back in the day when the Kruger Park was started, the game rangers used to ride around on horseback, right? Now they've got fancy SUVs. Um, but there was a famous game ranger that we heard about from a very young age called Harry Volhutter. And he, um, and this got to be ooh, maybe 50s or 60s. And um, he was attacked and taken off his horse, horse goes bolting by a full grown lion. Um, and, you know, lions got him by the neck and the shoulder and he's underneath the lion getting dragged. Um, and while he's underneath there, he's, he kind of gets his hunting knife out and he's able to get it underneath its armpit and, um, and kind of fatally wound the lion. But now you've got a bunch of other animals in the African bush that are going to smell you smell the blood and, and, and be very happy to make you food in a heartbeat. Um, so he climbs up a tree and ties him, knowing that he's going to pass out from the loss of blood, ties himself up in the top of a tree with his belt, um, where he was found by his peers when he didn't come home for dinner. Um, long story short, if you ever go to Skakuza camp in the Kruger National Park, South Africa, there's a big framed lion skin of the actual lion, and you can see the puncture marks um, from Harry Bullard's knife and he survived that attack and went on to, you know, work in the park for years and years and years. So, um, you know, little things like that were, you know, kind of playing dead so you can get underneath the line and that type of thing. Or, uh, you know, I hope I never have to use them and I'm pretty confident living in Dallas over here. It's something I'm never going to have to use in my life. Um, but you know, I, I guess I learned a lot of very useless now useless information and useless kind of skills around avoiding certain snakes and um, you know, what, what plants can be used to kind of deter mosquitoes and what can't um, a lot of stuff that I don't use in Dallas very often. Let's just put it that way. But it does sound like your family uh, made a point of creating a respect and a reverence for the natural world. Um, and it seems like yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of South Africans just have that, right? We're very connected to to the land and to to the wild. Um, you know, I don't think I was very special by spending a lot of time in the national parks. I think that was a very common thing um, for a lot of families. It, you know, you lived in a city, but you you know you spent four or five weeks a year out in the bush. Um, you know, I you know I had a lot of friends who, um, you know would drive very nice cars and dress very well and be in the trendy spots in downtown and, and be in the very kind of hip scene and then spend the weekends in, uh, in what you would consider kind of gardening clothes and, and hiking boots and just really slumming it without a cell phone. Right. There was that, that balance of um, just because you're a city boy doesn't mean you, you know, you don't know what to do when you're, when you're out in the bush for three days. It's it's hard too. I mean, I and I haven't spent a lot of time down there, but I've I've shot um, some advertising campaigns in Cape Town and in George, um, and the stunning beauty of Table Mountain of uh, I think it was called Hawks Bay of you know the waves and um, 
we, we did go up yep. through Kruger um, and see a bunch of the wildlife. I mean, it's just, it is astounding, the beauty down there. And I feel like um, it, it's just sort of, like you said, par for the course, really, that you'd load up your, your kit and your food. And for the weekend, you'd go hang out somewhere gorgeous. I mean, an hour, hour and a half outside of the city is just some of the most incredible landscape on earth. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to Cape Town, right? You don't even have to go an hour hour out of the city. the uh, The backdrop of the of downtown is is one of the most beautiful mountains, Table Mountain, and, and the surrounding areas. Just uh, you know, the 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 shore and 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 Hout Bay and Chapman's Peak, and it's uh, it's quite a phenomenal city. I think it's uh, I'm sure I'm biased, but there's there's very few natural ports that can compare to to Cape Town. I've heard Rio de Janeiro. I've never been there. Um, I heard that somewhat comparable with the the natural beauty and the mountains and and all that, that white beaches. But um, Cape Town is absolutely stunning. And I think for for people that that haven't seen pictures or haven't don't know a lot about Cape Town, um, perhaps you've seen, you know, the show Black Sails was pretty much all shot in in the Western Cape of South Africa, um, the pirate movie, I think it was on stars or TV show at least. Um, and it's just, there's no CGI needed, just breathtaking beaches, um, mountain drops in the background. It's, uh, it's pretty special. And, uh, the thing that I think makes Cape Town so great though, is the people, right? Everyone looks at the pictures and goes, wow, you know, this, this is so beautiful, but I've never been in a place where people have so little, many people at least have so little, um, that are so happy, right? I mean, you've got people walking down the street to go grab food for the week and they've got almost nothing and they might not have running water at home, but they're doing it with a huge smile on their face and they're singing. Um, and I think that was, uh, that was part of my upbringing that I am very, very grateful for having. It's just, just having perspective, right? I think it's probably more so relevant right now during this whole COVID thing than anything, right? I've probably been way too too positive about it compared to some of my peers or some of my family members. And part of that is just, I've seen a lot of bad stuff, right? I've seen people overcome, you know, very, very difficult times and difficult things. And it just puts things in perspective, right? You know, you're not being able to go to your favorite bar and hang out with your best friends for a couple months. It's like, who gives a shit in the greatest scheme of things, right? I've seen, I've seen people that have to walk two miles just to get clean water every day, every day, and carry it back on their shoulder every day, barefoot without shoes, right? And they do it with a smile on their face singing, you know, who cares if you, if you can't go to your favorite bar, right? Do your best to support your local places um, and keep those people able to support their families. But it's a small sacrifice that people have to make. And um, again, I say this on my, on my page all the time when I'm doing live videos, right? I don't want to ever um, kind of portray or, or, or kind of send my, outlook on life onto anyone. I don't, I'm not downplaying how tough things are for certain people. Um, and I understand to some people not being able to leave their house for a few weeks might feel like their life's ending, right? This is just purely how I see things. Um, and it's, you know, the South African way is like, Oh, well, it's tough, but whatever, make it through it and move on. 
I mean, I think those are two, and I don't want to call them uh, like brand pillars, but uh, uh, you know, if you consider your online presence as somewhat of a brand, I would say that some of the foundational um, things that you do bring to the table that are consistent that you can look forward to as a viewer um, are optimism and hard work. Um, you know, I know it's not easy to to pump out. Um, episode after episode and be present. And I know you're pulling time away from your family and your, your other full-time job. Um, but I think those two, uh, you know, values really do stand out, um, which I think is probably why people are attracted to, uh, to your page. Well, hey, Andy, I appreciate that. And, you know, I would hope so. That's, that's kind of, you know, what I, you know, I recently heard a phrase and I've been using it on my live tastings pretty regularly now. And it's, you know, where your focus goes, your energy flows. And I can't think of anything that really hit home more during this pandemic than that. And I think I myself, as positive as I consider myself, found myself kind of going down the social media rabbit hole, right? And reading certain comments about issues and, you know, inside I'm thinking that's not right. And I feel the need to comment on it. And you end up, it's just, it's, it's draining, and you have to kind of take a step back sometime. And that saying really hit home because I thought that's not where my energy needs to be, right? My, my focus and my energy needs to go to myself, my family, my closest friends, um, and less of my energy and focus needs to go to people and things that I cannot control. Um, so I always try kind of portray some type of positive message through the page. Um, Another message I try to portray regularly is like, hey, quit quit comparing your real life to social media because I think too many people, and I can give you like actual examples where I've got messages from people. And people are going, man, you you have the best life, and I would I would swap lives with you in a heartbeat. And I'm thinking, you know, I'll click on the person's page, and they've got a beautiful wife and kids, and a wonderful family, and a nice home. And I'm thinking, you know someone like that should not be wishing they would swap time with me. And I, you know, I make a point of saying, I don't just sit at my, in my tequila room and drink great tequilas and play phenomenal golf courses and travel the, the country and travel the world every day. You know, most days it's um, sitting in front of a screen and, and working and, and, you know, doing certain things that pay the bills, but no one's going to follow that shit on Instagram. So you don't post it. Right. So you're seeing someone's highlight reel, um, and there's no statistics to prove this, but I'm very confident that social media has to have some type of uh, some type of play in the higher rates of depression and 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 stuff that we're seeing in society today. Um, it just, it can't it, it there's no way it can it, it cannot right. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but um, there's no way that you can see these people portraying their lives as one big long vacation and compare it to what most people's reality is and not feel down about it a little bit. Right. So um, I try to stay positive. I love educating through the page. I love how I bring people together into this agave tequila community. Um, at the same time, I want to just, you know, make sure I relay some type of perspective that, um, you know, most of us are all going through the same stuff and doing the same stuff and to support families and make a living. Um, don't get down on yourself because you're not 
you know, staying at the world's nicest hotels and, and taking photos in, in bathing suits on beaches every day um, to pay the bills because there's a very, very few, uh, very, very few people on the globe actually can make a living that way. And the truth about social media is, is probably 80% of the people that appear to be making a living that way are probably still working at Gap and, uh, and just, you know, saying that they're modeling on Instagram or influencing on Instagram as their income, but they're really paying the bills by a method that's pretty similar to what you're doing. Well, and I, I, I think you're also not shy to show, and you know, that's what initially attracted me to your page was, uh, you know, this, this younger guy who clearly works hard at, um, you know, the, the content that he's putting out and is also referencing the sports that he's passionate about, um, and his health and his fitness. And, and for me, that work hard, play hard, um, and then unwind with your crew type attitude. I mean, that's how I roll. Um, can you jump a little bit back, um, into sort of your background with sport? I mean, I, it sounds like you had, uh, uh, whatever you're referencing water polo and golf and, track and running and everything in, in your background. But, um, at some point you got really good at golf. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, um, it's kind of funny because I don't think I would be where I am right now sitting here talking to you in my, uh, in my office here in Dallas, Texas without my sport and without golf. So, um, obviously growing up, I played a lot of things, this is a sport that maybe a lot of your listeners might not even know what it is, but you can go Google it. But I grew up and my main sport was cricket. And uh, even though I had to play different sports um, during different seasons, cricket was my main sport. And up until, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old, I, my dream was to play for the South African cricket team and, um, and be opening bowler for the Proteus, which is, you know, the national team. Um, Around the age of 14, though, because I grew up in this, this you know, at, at the school and in an environment where I said, you know, you're, you're very close to your peers and you're part of this community, um, my natural tendency is to be very competitive at everything. And um, so no matter what we were doing, whether it was running cross country or playing cricket or, or you know, taking tests or singing in the choir you had your close group of friends and I would be damned if they beat me at whatever it is. I don't, I mean, like, you know, who could finish lunch first? Uh, you can imagine a bunch of 15 and 16 year old boys hanging out together all day. We're competing at pretty much everything. So, um, around 14 years old, some of my closest friends who I played a lot of other sports with started getting into golf. So naturally I'm like, well, I got to learn how to beat them at this as well. Um, so I picked it up. So I, I probably swung a golf club before 14, um, but 14 was when I started actually trying to make an effort to do something and then actually focus on, hey, I'm going to see if I can play this, any, you know, if I'm any good at this. Um, and by the time I was 15, I was playing off scratch. So fast forward a little bit, and the other sports kind of started taking a back seat. And, um, you know, my senior year of high school, we won our national championship as a team. Um and at that point, my family immigrated to Australia. So I end up in Sydney. I've now finished high school. Kind of hard to make new friends when you're not in school anymore and you're a young adult in a, in a new country. Um, and so I continue to play golf and play some amateur events. And really in Australia, there's not a lot of collegiate sport. So you either decide you're going to turn professional and make a living out of the sport 
um, or you're going to give it up. Or for a golfer, your option is take a look at U.S. colleges. And um, I went with the last option and wrote to a bunch of schools. And it's another whole long story, but ended up at SMU, uh, Southern Methodist University here in Dallas. And I had actually never been to the United States. So here's another story that a lot of my American friends find kind of, kind of, you know, hard to grasp or get their mind around is that I had never been to the U.S. Um, and I signed all my commitment forms and national letter of intent via DHL and sent them to a school in Texas, knowing very little about Texas other than what the average temperature was and that the golf program was decent. Um, my family didn't really have the financial means to everyone fly over to the U.S. to kind of see me into school. So August 2006, I kissed my mom goodbye at Sydney Airport and hopped on a plane to the United States for the first time to start my college um, career at Southern Methodist University. And um, it feels like it was just yesterday, even though it's uh, you know almost 15 years ago now. Um, but I'll never forget doing the research on Dallas and seeing the population and seeing you know pictures of downtown. Um, and then if anyone has ever flown into DFW airport, which I'm sure a lot of you have, because it's a, it's a huge airport in the U S very central, um, and an American airlines hub, there's nothing around the airport. So I'm, I've now committed to this, you know, pretty big city, this cool school. And this, you know, I'm looking forward to it. I've been living in Sydney, which is a very vibrant city life, right? Lots of public transport. Um, everyone is kind of connected in the city. Um, signed all these forms, made a commitment to the school with never seeing it, never being to the U.S. And the plane's descending into DFW airport. And I look out the window and I just see fields. For as far as my eyes can see, I see fields on both sides of the plane. And I'm thinking, what have I got myself into over here? Um, you know, and I fast forward a couple hours and I get through customs, pull into SMU, which might be one of the prettiest campuses in the country. And then my mind was kind of warped in a different direction because I had never experienced um, a, a school and a campus like that, right? It was a very, um, very unique experience for someone growing up in South Africa with some of the, the issues that we've spoken about on this already all around me. And I pull up on a campus where, you know, most freshmen were driving BMWs or Range Rovers and, um, you know, it was definitely eye-opening. So, uh it was a unique experience, but fast forward again, college golf for three or four years and uh, turned professional off the school um, and chased that dream um, and wasn't quite what I uh, had in mind, but I, I can probably say a lot of my friends and a lot of my experiences and a lot of the cool places I've been and seen up to this point happened because of my golf career that I pursued that obviously didn't pan out as I wanted. Um, but like I said at the beginning of this, right, I don't think I'd be sitting here in Dallas, Texas, if it wasn't for for the sport of golf and, and for my kind of chasing that dream as far as I would take it. I also think you've got sort of, you know, and that, that provides the foundation for your lifestyle um, of health and wellness and at least a balanced lifestyle that is super important right now. Like, I think we're all becoming very, very aware of of our health and our well-being. Um, would you agree? I mean, that was sort of the foundation for you to really train for, you know, for fitness. 
Yeah, and I think a part of it was also my upbringing, right? So, you know, my dad swam very competitively. Um, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation here, right, apartheid. So in the 70s, South Africa was banned from the Olympics and from competing internationally because of the, the segregation and apartheid that was going on in the country. Um, my dad was actually swimming for the national team and was kind of on track to make the Olympic team. Um, and when that kind of happened, I don't know how familiar you are with swimming, but swimming, most swimmers, especially back in that day, had a very small window, right? You were 16 years old and they were already working out, you know, nine years from now, you're going to swim in that Olympics because people's careers had a very, very small window. Now, technology and supplements and, and, and people, you know, things have changed now. You've got, you know, people like Michael Phelps who can go to four or five Olympic games. It's, it's insane. But back in the day, that wasn't the case. Um, and as soon as he, he kind of knew that the swimming thing was over, he, he randomly kind of got into running ultra marathons. And there's a 56 mile race in South Africa called comrades. Um, and he kind of took that competitiveness that he had and, and ended up running you know, 15 times running the 56 mile race in South Africa. So you've got to, you've got to understand that growing up as a kid, I was surrounded by this. I was surrounded by an ultra marathon runner who was a previous national swimmer. And uh, so health and fitness has always been a, a part of my, my repertoire. Um, I think coming to school in the U S especially for golf, right. And that's not, you know, not being offensive to any, any of my buddies that are golfers, but, it's not the most athletic sport or athletically demanding. It's an extremely difficult sport. Um, but let's, let's be honest, 99% of PGA tour golfers could never play another sport. Like there's nothing else they could do at their level of physical capacity. Um, so I was kind of an outlier, like still wanting to run, um, you know, run track in my spare time and train and lift and, and stay healthy. And it's just kind of how I was brought up. Um, and it was not very common in the golf world. Now it's becoming more and more, um, a thing. And you've got a lot of more, you know, a lot more professional guys on the PGA tour that are, that are getting way more focused on their, on their training regimens and that. But, you know, let's go back a decade when I was in college, it was, uh, it was, you know, basically, a mix between doing a little bit of yoga with some dumbbells. And that was the extent of what a golf workout would be. Um, but just because that was the norm didn't really change how my outlook was. And it was that, you know, you've always got to be in the best physical condition and, and look after yourself, right? You only get one body. Um, and that kind of plays into why I ended up in tequila, right? I wasn't always a tequila drinker. Um, but I think my first experience with tequila, let's call it six or seven years ago, um, was really eye-opening on just how I felt physically after a big night out drinking tequila. Um, and so I talk about that on my page regularly, right? I, I, I preface it with, let's be honest, right? The most healthy way to drink alcohol is to not drink alcohol at all. But if you are going to drink a spirit, um, I don't think there's a healthier one than traditionally produced agave spirits just because of the the method that they use to produce it the you know the sugar content the fact that the uh, the type of sugar that comes out of the agave plant isn't absorbed into your bloodstream like other sugars are um 
So it's kind of funny because, you know, there's type 2 diabetics and the only spirit and hard liquor that they can drink without having their insulin levels spike is, uh, is tequila. Um, so there's definitely a health aspect to the online persona. Um, and it's just kind of part of who I am. And I think you can probably relate to that, you know, as far as, uh, as from, from coming from an athlete kind of mind frame is that that's always one of the first priorities on your list, regardless of what's going on. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, it's not just about like, Oh, I got to the top of the mountain. It's like, what are we doing next week? <laughs> you know? And so there's always sort of, you know, you're always training, you're always working hard. And then, uh, the photography work and cinematography work that I do, um, is also physically demanding. So I really can't, can't be dragging ass in the gym or in the mountains. So I, I hear you a hundred percent through and through. And that's, you know, that's how I found it as well. And we've talked about that, um, a bit in the past, um, what other, uh, and I know we're nearing, uh, almost an hour here, but what, what other sort of routines, um, you know, can we learn from you, you know, what, what have been some of these key drivers for your success from the outward look, you know, from outside looking in, you appear to be, um, a happy, driven, uh, successful man with children and, and a good career. I mean, what, what are the routines that you make a part of your life aside, aside from the health, the wellness, the fitness, uh, getting up early, training hard, and uh, sticking to agave spirits. What else is sort of part of your day-to-day you know, grind? I, I mean, I, I love how you say it. I, I think you make it sound out like I'm, uh, I've got a grasp on things a lot better than maybe I think I do. But I think the key is over there is that you're never going to be perfect, right? So it's um, as a professional golfer, you you learn a few things, right? And it's you learn from your past and your mistakes you analyze why that happened and you give yourself a very small window to kind of work out or analyze the past and then it's gone. So I don't think, and I think that that kind of relates to, to everyday life as well, right? If you made a mistake or something didn't work out or a venture didn't work out the way you wanted or a job didn't pan out how you thought it would, or you entered off on a certain career path that didn't work out, you know, spend a little bit of time to work out why you think that didn't work. And then it's gone. It's in the past. And, you know, in golf, we always say you can't let your last hole affect your next one. So don't bring any type of negativity or, 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 or bad juju, if you want to call it into your next venture or into your next day. Um, and that, that kind of goes, you know, in, in my professional life, almost on a day to day, but call it week to week and on a higher level, maybe quarter to quarter, right? What, you know, we just ended a quarter right now and we're starting July. How did the last three months go? Well, you know, I didn't plan for a fucking world global pandemic and I don't think anyone else did, but it's like, how did I react to that? I think most of my if you want to call it success in my life and whatever field it is comes from a, a, a kind of athlete mentality that was instilled by my father to me from a young age. And that's, you know, positivity can overcome anything. And at the same time, you know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. And I don't think there's a message that's any more rel- relative, you know, relevant, sorry, right now during what most of the globe is experiencing, right? A lot of it, we have no control over, but, but you can control how you react to that. And, you know, we talk about fitness and health. 
you know, the first few weeks that we were kind of locked down here in Texas, um, I was really frustrated. I loved my routine. I loved going to the gym down the street. I had a great routine. I felt good. I, I always joke that I don't feel any different at 35 than I did at 23. Um, well, over the last three months, I feel about 43 right now. Um, but, you know, you can sit and get down about it and complain that you don't have your equipment or you don't have your same facility or you can make the most out of it, right? So I made a little, you know, gym in the garage and um, you focus on what you can control and you analyze why, you know, the last week didn't go well or the last month didn't work out as you wanted it to. Um, you learn from it and you move on. And I think that's kind of the, the, the message that I, I wouldn't say message, but that's just kind of the way I do things, right? It's, it's, you can't, you can't live in the past. Otherwise your future is just going to look exactly the same as what you're, you know, you're kind of dwelling on and that you didn't like. Well, and I've, I've come to recognize the need to ask all guests, uh, two questions and, and you're now the first. <laughs> so congratulations. Uh, the first question, uh, towards the end of every interview I'm now going to ask is, is what is one physical goal that you have in the next couple months or year? Um, so I probably don't have, it, it's probably just outside a year and it's a physical goal that I, that I had, um, actually no, being July now, it, it's right on the year. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, I grew up with a father who ran 15 comrades marathons and, uh, you know, pretty insane that, I, you know, like six hours, 20 minutes was his best time he ever did for 56 miles. So I'll let you guys do the math on that, but it blows my mind. Um, that's, and it's that's funny because, blazing fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the, and the crazy thing is, is you, you climb about 5,000 feet during the course of the race as well. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that as a child, you just take anything your parents say as gospel. And in my later adult life, I actually went, wait a minute, there's no fucking way he did that. I went and like looked it up on the internet. And I'm like, holy shit, he actually did that. Um, so my goal would be to, I, I want to run Comrades Marathon, right? And I don't know how this, this whole pandemic is going to play out in that, but it's, it, it's in June, July um, in South Africa. Um, and my dad at 72 wants to do it again. So um, I think my physical goal to, to do that with him is definitely one of them. Um, might not be 12 months. It might be two years from now. Um, but, you know, the golf thing, the cool thing about not playing professional golf anymore and giving it up is there's still a very competitive amateur scene. And there's some really cool amateur tournaments. And um, the crazy thing is I feel like my golf game is probably better now than it was when I was trying to play for a living. Um, you know, there's the irony there. But um, I still really think that there's an opportunity to uh, to compete in a, in a USAM and a US Mid-Am at some point in the next 12 to 24 months. So... Um, physically from, uh, from a physical perspective, that's probably my goals, um, right there. Love it. And then the second question is what is one mental psychological goal or habit that you're working to make a part of your life? I want to, uh, I want to get back into a routine. I did it for a little while with a lot of success and I want to get back into a routine of getting up super damn early and, uh, and getting some me time for an hour and a half or so every morning before the real world kicks in and, 
and uh, and and you know, job has requirements, and uh, and little man has requirements, and family has requirements, and everyone's got all these things that are that are kind of taking from their time and requiring their focus and their energy, and they're very important, right? And I think some of my mentors through life who have been very successful in different fields, um, they've all kind of done the same thing, and it's that you know. If, if your physical health and your and your conditioning and your training is still important to you, even when it's not part of your your life, your income anymore, um, you're probably going to have to do that at 4:30 in the morning or four o'clock. Because at a certain time, you're just being a selfish dick if you're if you're taking an hour away from time with your three-year-old because you want to make sure you're still in shape, right? So um, I've tried to get better at it. It's tough. Um, but that's my that's my goal right there. From a from a goal standpoint, I want to get back into you know taking care of business as far as training and health and looking after that part. Um, get it all done by five thirty or six o'clock in the morning, so um, the rest of my energy can be spent on the other important things. Well, and that that echoes uh, the sentiment of other ultra driven successful people. Um, I, you know, Jocko Willink. I don't know if you're familiar with Jocko Willink. Uh, I am. I've actually met him before, and it's uh, it, it's definitely someone I I listened. I've read that book a couple times. They're yeah, phenomenal. I, I mean, he posts a photo of his watch every morning at 4:30 a.m. You also hear about Richard Branson, Kevin Hart. Um, you know, other very successful driven people, um, who very plainly say, you know, the the most important part of of my routine is uh is working out every day and that happens first thing super early. And I don't know if it's so much about the working out, but it's about that me time prioritizing the health and the wellness. um, So you can then go serve others. You know, I think one, the the most important part that comes out of doing that is, is that you're, you're taking control and, you know, we're talking about Jacko. So you're taking ownership of your day. And it's like, you know, at 4.30 in the morning, you don't have a boss and you don't have a family. You don't have people requiring your energy so you can do, you know, you can focus on that. And, uh, you know, I think I know, like you said, right, there's there's a whole list of successful people. I, I am yet to see a super successful person that brags about how they sleep in every day. So um, <laughs> that's, that's probably the thing I'm working on now. It doesn't always play well in with the fact that my my passion and my side hobby is a is a tequila enthusiast and reviewer. Um, it doesn't always work out so well drinking tequila into the late hours of the night, um, or doing multiple tequila reviews on a night and then waking up at four thirty to work out. But we find a balance. Well, uh, I will link up for sure uh, your website and your Instagram. But where can people learn more about uh, what you've got going on? Yeah, so it's uh, you know, I appreciate it giving me the opportunity. So the uh the Instagram account that we've been chatting about tonight is at the underscore tequila underscore wanderer. Um, you know, and like I said, it's uh it's it's my page, but I really consider it more of a community. And uh the page is only as good as the people that follow it and interact on the page and uh I, I love I love the fact that we bring people together around agave spirits from different corners of the world, different religions, different sexual preferences, different political views, um, different income brackets. But generally on my page during conversations and live videos, it really doesn't matter 
all people can do is find similarities and things that they have in common with different tequilas. And uh, my hope is that somehow the page can keep growing um, and that attitude can kind of get relayed onto more and more people. You know, I think in the, in the landscape we live in today, more people, people meet strangers. And the first thing they want to do is find out like what topics and what issues do we disagree on? And I feel like on the page, at least, it's the complete opposite. It's immediately like, what do we like? That's, what do we have in common? What do we both like? What do we do both enjoy to drink? Um, so I bring people together around agave spirits. And like I said, it's at the underscore tequila underscore wanderer. And, um, you know, I love the community. And I love the followers that I have on there. It's, uh, it's definitely something I, I've enjoyed over the last couple of years. And I don't have any plans to kind of, stop dedicating time to it anytime soon well i appreciate you hopping on the call nick we're, we're gonna have to do like a follow-up boozy version where we're both <laughs> sipping on the same tequila i've got a, a a commercial shoot early in the morning so I'm, I'm on water for the moment um oh i love it but, we'll do one together we'll get uh, we'll drink some of your tequila soon yeah 100 percent, man and and you know, with all of the sort of turmoil going on in the world and all the negativity coming out, uh, specifically of social media and the media, um, I really appreciate you reminding us that the world is full of incredible people and that the world is still a beautiful place. Um, and to remain positive and work hard, man. And those foundational things, I think, are uh, are timeless. I really appreciate that. Hey, I appreciate it, Andy. It's uh you know, been a lot of fun, and I look forward to uh, to sipping some tequila together in the same room at some point when uh, when all of this blows over. It'll happen, man. We might be wearing rubber gloves and masks, <laughs> but it'll happen. <laughs> I love all right, it. Nick. Thank you, Appreciate brother. It. Appreciate hey, it, man. A lot of fun. Yes, sir. Salute. Cheers. See you soon. Well, come on, podcast.